Welcome everyone to the podcast Unanswered Questions with Pastor Tim Cole. This is a podcast where we talk about tough theological and Christian living questions sent in by people just like you. Our hope is that listening will strengthen your confidence in God's Word, helping you to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. If you have any questions, please send them to questionsforpastortim at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Unanswered Questions with Pastor Tim Cole. Taking a couple weeks off, so thanks for joining back with us on the podcast. Today, the question is a big one. We're jumping right back into some important topics. Is salvation free? Or does it cost us something? Does it cost us certain works or certain activities or, or something else? Or is it free by faith alone in Jesus Christ? So may God bless you as you listen. Uh, welcome to another podcast, another episode in the study of Paul's first letter to a group of people that we know today as the Galatians. This is modern-day Turkey, and um, I hold particularly to the South Galatian theory, and which is not an unusual position to take. It is uh, well represented by many scholars in the field. And uh, in particular, um, Paul, writing in about 48 AD, has got word that his converts in Galatia had been infiltrated by a group of uh, Jewish people whose theology argued that to become a Christian, you first had to become a Jew. And to become a Jew, you had to follow some of the scruples of the Jewish law. You had to adopt some of the Jewish symbols and go through some of the Jewish ceremonies to become that Jewish person, and then you would be fully qualified as a Christian. And so they're adding some prefaces to faith in Christ. They're adding some requirements that go beyond the gospel that Paul preached. So he uh, puts together a letter, uh, six chapters long, uh, arguing that the gospel that he preached to them originally is the gospel that they need to stay with and remain with and anything else is worthy of condemnation and it is not the truth that scripture testifies to so he begins uh, with expressing astonishment and shock that they've quickly so quickly uh, moved away from the one who had called them uh, either referring to the spirit of god or to god the father or to jesus called them to faith called them to glory, and now we're deserting the gospel, deserting the one who had called them in the first place. Paul is hot under the collar. Uh, his temperature rises. You can feel his pulse in this letter. He's upset, and use, he even uses the strong Greek word thaumadzo. I am shocked in the present tense of the steps that they had taken. Apparently, they were on the verge of adopting circumcision or entering into the ritual of circumcision. And what Paul wants to do, as is typical of him, is he states a proposition. That proposition is given in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He says, I want you, you is plural, you as a group of churches, a group of believers, I want you to know, sisters and brothers, that the good news that I preached is not something that 
human beings had made up. It is not of human origin. Paul did not receive what he preached to them from another human being, regardless of who that human being might have been in their eyes, whether it was Simon Peter, whether it was James, or whether it was John, or some other person. There was no human intermediary when, when Paul received the gospel. No one taught him the gospel. He received it entirely through a revelation from Jesus. So there was no mediation between Jesus and Paul. Paul got it straight. Paul got it straight from Jesus. It's undiluted. It's not watered down. It's not varnished. It's pure. And what he wants to do now is to, for two chapters to defend with evidence from his personal life that that proposition is true. His own life is a series of interactions with people and travels and meetings with people that shows that he could not have received the gospel from people. And so for two chapters, he shows evidence from his own life, from his own um, visit to Jerusalem in verse 18. Then 14 years later, he went again up to Jerusalem. Uh, and he describes that experience there where he was not asked to change his message or to add to his message. No one there asked him to, for example, circumcise Titus, uh, who is a Gentile. If anybody should have been uh, circumcised, if anybody had a chance to change the message, man, Jerusalem was the ideal place. We have a Gentile. Let's do this. But no, none at all. Nobody was asked to be circumcised, even though they were Gentiles, Gentiles claiming to be believers in Christ. His other uh, interaction that he brings up in chapter 2, verses 11, is when he opposed Peter to his face. Here is evidence that Peter, the great champion of the gospel to the Jewish people, along with James and John, uh, those are the men that people knew of and were associated with Jesus closely. But Paul confronts him to his face because he acted in hypocrisy. He was separating himself from Gentile people at mealtime when a group of people from Jerusalem came to visit or came to spy out on their freedom. And uh, other people joined in the hypocrisy. Paul mentions Barnabas, good old Barnabas, was also led astray. And when he saw that these people were not acting in line with the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the plumb line of the gospel, he confronts them. And he gives a speech in front of them. And today, what I want to do in this particular podcast is give Paul's summary. Paul gives a summary of his speech that he made to this group of people in Antioch, the first Gentile church. The message that he gave to Peter and all of the people who were there at that moment, he gives a summary or a precis of his message. And what he does here is to show that even Jewish people like Peter and James and John and Paul, uh, they themselves know that they are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, not by observing law works, not by observing religious rituals and ceremonies that were a part of the early Jewish faith, part of the early Jewish religion. Even Jewish people know that the law does not save. Even Jewish people, of all people, 
they know that Jesus Christ and faith in him is the only way of salvation. So in verse 15 of chapter 2, Paul begins to summarize his speech. So here's just a few verses that Paul has put together to summarize what could have been perhaps an hour-long speech in front of this group in Antioch. And he says, we who are Jews by our birth, we're not proselytes who've come to faith in Christ later as Gentiles. No, we're Jews by birth and we're not Gentile sinners. We know, we know that a person is not declared righteous by observing the law of Moses. We know that. We know that a person is declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. That's a powerful statement. The <clears throat> infiltrators have come into the Galatians and are persuading them that they need to become Jews in order to become Christians. They needed to adopt circumcision and perhaps other religious, Jewish religious ceremonies to become proper Christians. But Paul says, wait a minute. We who are Jews, we know that it's not the law and our observing the law that makes us right with God, that cleans the slate with God, that brings forgiveness and gives God the justification to declare us righteous. We know that about our own law. So he says, we, we Jews, we too have put our faith in Jesus that we may be declared righteous by faith in the Savior, faith in the Messiah, and not by observing the law. And he makes it very clear again by repeating it for the third time within one paragraph. Because by observing the law, keeping the law, like being circumcised, keeping the Sabbath, no one will be justified. So Paul establishes the fact that whereas Gentiles may not know this, the Jews know it. They knew that their law is a failure. New, they knew that the law of Moses failed to bring the people of God into the promised land. Life under the law weakens faith. And the story of the Pentateuch, in fact, the structure of the entire Pentateuch argues that the law of Moses is a disaster. It's a failure. It does not bring the people of God into the promised land. It, they left Egypt by faith. They crossed the Red Sea by faith. And no sooner did they receive the law of Moses at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the Mosaic Law, no sooner did that happen that the nation of Israel, even its leaders, Moses and Aaron, began to fail and began to disobey God. The writer of the Pentateuch, Moses, is showing us that the Jewish people could see that the law is a failure. It did not bring the people who started out in the Exodus, crossing the Red Sea, moving towards the Promised Land, and there in the wilderness, wandering for 40 years, they all died with the exception of two. Even Moses did not make it. Even Moses, the one who received the commandments, fell to his death prior to entering the Promised Land. The message is, no one is headed to heaven. No one is going to go to the promised land. No one is going to return to Eden Mountain. No one is going to come back into the presence of God. No one is going to gain a right standing before God. No one's going to be declared righteous and right with God on the basis of observing the Mosaic Law. The law cannot 
and will not change the heart. What is needed is something beyond the law, above the law, and in place of the law, to make man's heart right with God. So Paul establishes the fact that, hey, you Gentiles, you're being told that you have to become Jews by observing the law? Wait, wait. We Jews know that that's not true. We Jews know that our law is a catastrophic failure to bring people to be justified before God. And then he continues in verse 17. He says, if we seek, if while we seek to be declared righteous in Christ, it becomes clear that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ in some way promotes sin? God forbid. Absolutely not. Uh, if I rebuild what I destroyed, Paul says, then I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. If I rebuild, he's uh, hypothesizing there, if I rebuild the law or the barrier that, that once uh, stood between Jews and Gentiles uh, but was destroyed by Christ, if I rebuild that law, and put it back up, separating Jews and Gentiles so they can't correspond with each other and have fellowship with each other and can't eat with each other. If I rebuild that wall, the wall that has already been destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. So what purpose, then, did the law have? I mean, why institute the law? Uh, well, Paul says personally here, he says, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. It was by means of trying to obey the law and trying to please God through the law that he died. He realized he and the law had nothing in common. It gave him no life. It gave him no security with God. So he died to the law that he would live for God. When did he die to the law? He says in verse 20, well, here's when I died to that law. I've been crucified with Christ. He's speaking about his salvation experience. This is what happens when we follow Christ, we take up our cross, we put our faith in him. We are co-crucified with Jesus. And so the remainder of our life, it's not me living, it's Christ who is living in us. It's not the law living in us. The law is not animating us. The law is not giving us life. The law is not giving us motivation. The law is not giving me a desire to please God and to walk with God and to love God and to love my neighbor. The law is not doing that. No, the law is dead. I died to it. It's dead. And what's animating me and giving me a heartbeat, a spiritual heartbeat, is the fact that Christ is living, Christ is living in me. And so the life I live today, the life I live today in the body, these bodies of ours, we don't live by law, but we live by faith in the Son of God. He makes it personal. The life I live in the body, I live by trust. Probably a better word than faith. Trust uh, includes not only believing certain things, but it also has the idea of complete dependence and loyalty to someone, which is the original idea of the word pistuo, the verb to trust. I live by trust 
in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is explaining here how he as a Jew has no relationship any longer to the law other than one of death. And the new relationship that he has to God has been provided through the life of Christ. He was crucified with Jesus, and now he lives with Jesus because Jesus lives within him. And the life now that he enjoys before God is a life of faith, a life of trust in the living Son of God. And it's rooted in love. All of that is rooted in the love of the Son of God. Paul was loved by Jesus and gave himself for Saul of Tarsus. So, when Jesus died on the cross, Paul yet was not a believer. Paul was still Saul of Tarsus. He was still uh, perhaps living in the area of Jerusalem. We don't know. That time of Paul's life is uncertain. But what Paul is assuring us here is that when Jesus died, he was dying for Saul of Tarsus. He had Saul of Tarsus in mind when he, had, when he hung on Calvary's tree. And what kept him there and what put him there was the love for this enemy of his, this love of Saul of Tarsus. And that love then moved him to give himself for Saul of Tarsus. And any believer today can say the same thing. When Christ hung on that cross, what put him there, what kept him there until he finished, until he died, was his great love for us, was his great love for us individually, Jew or Gentile. That's the key right there to our changed relationship to God. It's not a matter of observing the law. It's not a matter of keeping religious ceremonies. Those things accomplish nothing. The whole world turns on the love of Christ. And it's the love of Christ, animated by Christ, that allows us to live for God, have new desires and new dreams and a new future and new hope, hope of eternal life, hope for this life and the assurance of, of the forgiveness of all of our sins. The law provides none of that. The law gives none of that. The law does not give freedom. It does not give assurance. It only can condemn. It only can find fault with us. The law cannot solve the problem. Even Jews know that. Jews, having read their Bible, know that for sure. The law is a failure. And the Jews know that. And what only will save a man or woman and boy and girl is faith in Jesus Christ, being declared righteous by God by faith in Christ. So Paul is taken two chapters to defend his gospel. He's on trial. He's on trial in the minds of many people. He's on trial because he came to the table with a lot of strikes against him. He was handicapped by a bad reputation, a persecutor, someone who tried to destroy the church, Galatians 1.13. He had no resume whatsoever. He is never associated with Jesus in the book uh, that we call the Gospel of Luke, or in any other of the Gospel. He is a virtual unknown. So he comes on the scene uh, as a total rookie in terms of a Christian resume, no time with Christ, and with a huge reputation that says, I'm against Christ, I'm against Christians. And the book of Acts in chapter 7 shows him in cahoots with others in the stoning of Stephen and killing him, an innocent man. So, Paul is on trial. 
in the minds of some certain Christians. And if he is on trial, then his gospel is also on trial. You can't separate the man from what he says. You can't separate the man from the message that he was proclaiming. So he argues here from his own personal life after he became a Christian that his life shows he could not have received the gospel from people. He could not have received the gospel from any of the church leaders in Jerusalem. There just not was not enough time for that to accomplish. His only source for knowing the gospel was direct revelation from Jesus, and his life bears it out. Then his travels to Jerusalem bore it out. Nobody wanted him to change his message. They simply agreed, okay, Peter, you go to the Jews. Paul, you go to the Gentiles. Even the pillars of the church, Peter, Jacob, and John, uh, reputed to be pillars in Jerusalem, acknowledged that. And then his confronting of Cephas and of Barnabas in, in Antioch shows that it was Paul's gospel that stood the test. It was Paul's gospel that stood firm. And it was Peter's hypocrisy which showed that the plumb line of the gospel is the standard by which we are to live our own lives. And so he concludes, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, we know that people are declared righteous by God, not by observing the law, but by faith in Christ. And he repeats that phrase three times just to make sure that the Galatians get it. Well, he's arguing um, vociferously. He's arguing strongly here. He's arguing boldly here because the gospel is at stake and their condition is at stake. And he believes it's a major catastrophe if they give in for one moment to this group that's saying, well, you know, this, this faith in Christ is okay, but you need to become a Jew first in order to be accepted by God. So Paul is concerned about these people. He loves them, but he's upset. And he's pulling out all his guns, all the stops, to make sure that they hear him loud and clear. Thanks for listening to this particular uh, episode as we continue to go through Galatians. What we're trying to see is that when uh, Paul writes a letter, he makes a statement, he makes a proposition, he wants to argue a point, and for the rest of the letter, he stacks up his argument like a pile of bricks, hoping to build a mountain of evidence to support what he's saying. Evidence that's credible, evidence that's believable, and evidence that will persuade them and convince them. That's the purpose of every letter. Persuasion. Convincing people to believe the truth, and to live by the truth. I hope you're doing that yourself. And try on Galatians. Uh, follow the argument. Learn how to do it. Something that perhaps most people have never, ever been taught to do is to follow the argument of a letter. And in our next occasion, we'll do more of the same. Thanks for listening. God bless your reading. Thank you for joining us this episode. And remember to send all your questions to questions for Pastor Tim at gmail.com.